We look in Acts chapter 17, and in many ways, I think we see Paul at his best in Acts 17. One of the things about Paul, for a number of different reasons, Paul was unafraid to enter into environments that were challenging, environments that were hostile, uh, environments that were intimidating. You see Paul, much like Jesus himself, continue to move right into the center of these environments. And today in Acts chapter 17, where we see Paul moving, is we see Paul moving into the center of the philosophical world. Athens was the center of ideas. Athens was the marketplace where different religions and spirituality and philosophies really manifested themselves. And Paul goes right in there, and he starts to engage in a way with amazing Love and effectiveness as he brings a message that's not his own, a message that he brings from the Spirit called the Gospel. Stand with me as we consider Acts chapter 17 this morning, Paul in Athens starting in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed and observed the objects of your as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Demiris, and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Occasionally we meet a person in our lives that changes our life forever. We all have people like this. Some have more than others. But really, no matter how old you are, no matter what your story is, and oftentimes for good or bad, we have occurrences and instances where we meet an individual, and as a result of meeting that person, and then moving into a relationship with that person, we are changed forever. I had one of those experiences in the late 90s in St. Louis when I was in graduate school, late 90s, early 2000s. One of my professors was a man named Jerem Bars. Jerem is from England and became converted later in life upon himself being suicidal, then getting connected to the ministry of Francis Schaeffer through a ministry called Labrie. Uh, in Europe, and then he himself came to profess faith in Christ. He was Francis Schaeffer's gardener. His soon-to-be wife was Francis Schaeffer's secretary, and Jerem's life was turned around forever through the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. One thing leads to another. God calls Jerem Bars to St. Louis to be a professor at Covenant Seminary. God calls me to Covenant Seminary to study theology in the Bible on a master's graduate level, and I interact and meet Jerem Bars, and my life has never been the same. Jerem's an amazing person on a number of different levels, as one would imagine. His intellect was high. He spoke with a British accent, always compelling to Americans, it seems. Uh, It just makes people sound smarter and more compelling, though he backed up that wit and intellect. But out of all the things I could tell you that were compelling about Jerem, his love for art, his knowledge of Christian poetry, for example, his knowledge of apologetics, his knowledge of the Scriptures, out of all things I could tell you that were amazing about Jerem, the thing that was the most compelling and is the most compelling thing to me about this man named Jerem Bars was his heart. I had never interacted with a person that viewed the world in the way in which he did particularly the non-Christian world. I had never seen anyone or spoke with anyone or engaged with anyone that engaged the culture and engaged the skeptical, non-believing world, including many of his own friends who would fall into that category with such humility and with such love, so much so that he was regularly in class, in academic settings, in a graduate school, brought regularly to tears as he would think about the culture at large, as he would think about his own friends who were in a place of unbelief. His humility, his love, and his heart to engage the culture and others who seemingly, spiritually speaking, were lost was infectious. It transformed me It transformed relationships in my life, like profound familial relationships that I had spent years being so antagonistic towards. I realized how much antagonism there was in my own heart towards the culture. I realized how much self-righteousness and judgment there was in my own heart when I thought about people that were in a different place than I was spiritually or religiously, and I was undone, and I'm still 
to this day being undone because of God's work and influence through Jerem Bars. He said things like, most non-Christians think Christians hate them. Most non-Christians think Christians hate them, which sounds simple. Unfortunately, it's true. He said things like, why do we as Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians? Think about that. Why do we as Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians? For those of you that came to believe later in life, when you were a non-Christian, was it reasonable for you to act like a Christian? In fact, if you were smart, you would know that's a bad idea because acting is not what the gospel is about anyway, right? But here we are as Christians trying to demand non-Christians to act like Christians. One more from Jeremy, and it's at the front of your bulletin. Reflection. Which reveals more just about his heart and the way he engaged the culture, particularly a culture of unbelief and skepticism, agnosticism, atheism. Scripture requires that true worship and faithful teaching are to focus on dealing with the sins of the church and believers instead of the sins of those outside the church and the world. The sharpest criticisms in Jesus' teaching are reserved for those who see themselves as devoted worshipers of the Lord. We do not see Jesus condemning the sinners in the world. Rather, he condemns the leaders of God's people with his severest words. You get around a person like that that engages people with humility and love, it's powerful. We see a person like that in Acts chapter 17. We see the Apostle Paul, who definitely remembers what it's like to not believe, engaging unbelief, skepticism, idolatry, agnosticism, and atheism with great care, with great love, with great precision. And that's what I want us to look at in more depth this morning, is just to see this call through the Apostle Paul to engage the world around us, to engage unbelief, to engage skepticism, to engage other religions, other views of spirituality. But that's not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination, in many ways, is to do one or two other, one of two things that are polarizing. On one hand, in this culture at large today, if you've been brought up Christian or even professed Christ, there's great pressure right now to rebel against that which you know or have believed much of your life to be true and to simply absolve yourself into the culture, to become part of the culture through rebelling against the Christian faith. On the other end of the spectrum, and this seems to be where most of the church is today, there's this natural default or inclination to retreat from the culture. Christians in many ways are seeking to retreat We don't like what's going on in the culture, so we're going to create a subculture. We don't like what's going on in the city at large, so we're going to create a ghetto. And in the midst of this retreat mentality that is so often birthed, it seems primarily in fear, we decide we need to create our own institutions, our own language, our own art, our own fill-in-the-blank. 
Meanwhile, what we're doing in so many ways is absolving ourselves from a call that Jesus himself says to be salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. Or in Jesus' prayer in John 17, oftentimes referred to as the high priestly prayer, what one of my pastor friends calls the real Lord's prayer, as in a prayer that Jesus isn't teaching us to pray. Jesus just prays this. He says a number of things in John 17, but one of the things that he says is, I do not pray that you take my disciples out of the world. And so there's this sense where Christians, upon Christ's own statements, among others, these two that I named, to be salt and light, to be in the world but not of the world, yet here we are having to deal with the temptation to either rebel against the gospel or to retreat from the culture. Meanwhile, what we see in Acts 17, meanwhile, what we see in the life of Christ, meanwhile, what we see in people like Jerem Bars is this movement to engage. So in Acts 17, we see Paul's movement to engage a culture that has questions. Our culture has questions, right? I mean, in many ways, we can be discouraged about where the moral compass is in our culture at large. We can be discouraged particularly about institutional religion. Yet there's still a lot we can find common ground in. There's still a lot that we can even be encouraged by. Even in postmodernism, philosophically, what has become true of that is a real openness to spirituality. And it gives us a real opportunity. So we can malign that, and we can pine for the good old days, which were never that good, or we can seek to engage the current climate that we have, which is highly spiritual, and according to the work of the gospel, an opportunity for receptivity, for transformation and change. I was listening this week to an interview on NPR during Fresh Air with Terry Gross. She was interviewing an author who's a professor of religion at Princeton named Elaine Pagels. Elaine Pagels just recently published a book entitled Why Religion? A memoir on suffering and religion. You see, Elaine Pagels lost a terminally ill son who was six and a half years old in the late 80s, and then a year later lost her husband to an accident. And so she's dealt with her fair share of suffering, yet she's asking this question personally and professionally, why religion? in her new book. And so Terry Gross interviews Elaine Pagels in this discussion. And of course, there's a lot that ensues, but I was ensues in that interview. But I was particularly drawn to one point when she talks about being 15 years old, living in Palo Alto, California, and going to a Billy Graham crusade. Now, I have a friend here in town who's a former colleague, at least in the same building I am, who's older than me, but she grew up in Palo Alto, California. And I remember I was, as I was getting to know my friend better Uh, over the years that we shared the same office space and building together. She was a clinical psychologist. She grew up in Palo Alto, California, and told me until she was 18 years old, she had no idea about the existence of God and such thing as a Christian church, period. And so you can just imagine, and this woman, Elaine Pagels, would be about the same generation as my friend here in town. But when she was 15, she goes to San Francisco to a Billy Graham crusade, and she talks about how mesmerizing it was. And how amazing it was. And how different it was than the home that she grew up in, which was an academic, atheistic, or at least agnostic 
home. And she was compelled by the power, in many ways, though she didn't use this exact word, by the power of the gospel through Billy Graham. Her response to going to this when she was 15 years old was to be born again. The hope of a life that would be transformed. She went back home and she said, you can only imagine what my parents thought about that. Religion was problematic, but then evangelical Christianity? Good grief. It really couldn't be any worse. I'd completely gone to the other side and their view. But she was compelled by this message that Billy Graham spoke. A year later, she had a close friend die in a car wreck. And upon his death... As a teenager, she sought comfort in her newfound Christian community, which tested her faith. And she says it like this. Well, it wasn't exactly that it even tested my faith, whatever that meant. I went back to my evangelical friends. My friend Paul, who was killed, was 16 and was in high school. And when I went back to the evangelical church, my friends were very sympathetic. And they said, oh, that's terrible. Was he born again? And I said, no. He was Jewish. And then they looked at me, stunned, and said, well, then he's in hell. And I thought, what? This has nothing to do with what attracted me to this kind of community, this kind of conviction. God loves you and all that. It has nothing to do with that. It's antithetical. And I felt completely alone. I walked out of there, and I never went back. Now, There's a lot that could be said about that situation, that answer, and the way in which she dialogued over that and experienced that. I can't get into all that today. I simply want to say this. We've got to, as a Christian church, be able to engage people in more thoughtful, compassionate ways than that. Regardless of the issues that are at hand. And I think what we see is a great example this morning in Acts 17 of Paul doing this. With a lengthier introduction, my gift to you is two points uh, this morning. I want us, as we see Paul engaging the culture there among the Greeks in Athens, I want us to look at his attitude and I want us to look at his approach. So the overarching call here is to engage in a way that is thoughtful and effective and that is faithful to God's glory by the power of the Spirit. How do we do so? We can look at Paul's attitude and we can look at his approach. Let's begin by looking at Paul's attitude from the very beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What's the first thing we see about Paul's attitude? He was burdened. He was genuinely burdened for what he saw. Presumably, as we look at the Greek and we look at the words that are entailed to describe his emotions, he was sad. He was angry. He was challenged. He was moved deeply in his spirit as he saw that this city was full of hopeless idols. It reminds me of one of my former students. Her name was Kate Seat. When she went and studied abroad, I remember talking to her when she came back and asking her about her experience 
and we were talking about all the different fun things that she experienced studying abroad in Europe. And then we started to talk about relationships that she made. And then she was talking about the relationship that she was the closest with was a friend of hers who was Muslim. And as she started to talk about her, she just started to cry. In many ways, I feel like that captures Paul being moved deeply in spirit. The text doesn't tell us that Paul started to cry. I don't think that he did. But we do know that he was burdened, and he was sad, and he was angry as he saw a city full of idols. As he saw a city that was created by God, as he saw a group of people, as in every person there who were created by God, now worshiping themselves created things. It's a monstrous substitution, as A.W. Tozer says from Romans chapter 1. We exchange the glory of the Creator for created things. That's what idolatry ultimately is. It's taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's substituting God. It's what Keller calls counterfeit gods. And we can do this with any and everything. Here in Athens, in their day, we see this done in a very literal way, where they worshipped images of gold and silver. But today we see it in a literal, if not figurative way in our own life. We too worship images. We worship idealistic images of ourself. We worship idealistic images of our children. We worship idealistic images of our spouse. We worship money. We worship material goods. We worship reputation. We will do anything to be approved of to take control, to gain power. Why? Because we're idol factories. That's what John Calvin said. All of these things are idols. Success is good until it becomes God. Money, the Bible even says, is good until it becomes God. Success is good until it becomes God. Our self-image is good until it becomes God. Marriage is good until it becomes God. Religious practice is good until it becomes God. And Paul's dealing with the idolatry in Acts 17 in rampant ways. Some commentators would say that the the words that Paul is trying to capture here is, there was a veritable forest of idols. It's as if this city literally was under the weight of idolatry. And Paul was deeply moved in spirit and burdened by that. Peter Kreeft, who's a Christian philosopher, says the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. Not only do we need to see that in our culture at large and to identify the idols that exist in the world at large, we too need to persistently inconsistently be identifying our own idols. Especially even if you're a Christian or you profess Christianity, we must take heed to the words from Isaiah 29, verse 13, that Jesus himself mentions multiple times in the gospel, you come near to me with your mouths, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts, they're far from me. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13 My people, the Lord says, have committed two sins, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have sown for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what idolatry is. And so by no means should we look at this and think, oh man, 
Paul was dealing in a culture and a world that was just like ours. All these people, all of them are given over to idolatry. If that's your mentality, you're already ineffective at advancing the gospel and the kingdom if we don't see idolatry in our own hearts. And by the way, that's the overarching kind of goal of application today is that we as Christians, those of you who are Christians here this morning, would become more effective at engaging the culture and people like Paul, with people like Paul and Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, that you might receive the challenge today that Paul gave the men in Athens, the men and women in Athens then. And so when we even think about this concept and this idea of idolatry, which is a big deal in Scripture, it's repetitively mentioned. We've got to look at ourselves and not simply at the culture. But when Paul looked at the culture in Athens, he was burdened. He was also jealous on God's behalf. Now, this is a strange thing to think about, but it's also a beautiful thing when you think about it relationally. Don't, if you're married, don't you want your spouse to be jealous for you and the exclusivity that exists in your connection with each other? Well, yes, that's, that's an intimate thing. Well, God has that with his people, and Paul has it on God's behalf. Paul is jealous And then Paul, interestingly enough, what else do we see about his attitude? Paul is affirming. Did you see that? And this is where it might start to rub up against our comfortable notions. Did you catch in the text where Paul says, I see in every way you are very religious. I believe he's saying that positively. Now he's challenging their objects of worship. But what he's taken into account here is the human condition, that we were made to worship. And Paul actually affirms that in them, which is extremely important and a point of application for Christians that are seeking to engage the world to find common points of connection. Where are there areas that we can affirm others who are in a different place than we are religiously or spiritually? Here's a litmus test. When we hear about things that happen in the world or people that we know in our own lives that manifest sin and brokenness, are you more quick to mourn or judge? Because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. It's as if we think Jesus says, blessed are those who immediately and fastidiously and consistently judge. Jesus himself even said, I didn't come to judge the world. We know later that there are aspects of Jesus' judgment, and Paul talks about it in a minute. We'll look at. The bottom line is Paul finds a way that he can build a bridge to affirm things about them. That's effective. That attitude, looking for affirmation, builds a bridge. It makes that relationship more winsome, and that's really the last aspect of Paul's attitude. So he's burdened, he's jealous, he's affirming, and then he's also winsome. Seemingly, he was winsome in his humility. And we'll talk about more about his approach in just a minute as far as his winsomeness with approach. It reminds me years ago, and this story even carries more profundity knowing that I've given you two stories this morning from the late 90s. This is late 90s. I was at a Christian conference, and Philip Yancey was there. Philip Yancey is a uh, former uh, editor of Christianity Today, prolific author, um, Embraces, believes the gospel, has been a significant influence uh, in the last 50 years in evangelical Christianity. And there was a person standing up front 
talking about Philip Yancey at this conference, and they were talking about how Philip Yancey feels about or what Philip Yancey's position is on homosexuality in the late 90s. And the man that was standing up talking about Philip Yancey said, I actually don't know what Philip Yancey's position is on homosexuality or how he feels about that. I can tell you how Philip Yancey feels about this speaking autobiographically, about this homosexual. He loves me. I thought that was profound. It was winsome. It was a way where presumably, and I don't know where he is today or anything on this, presumably at the time, Yancey had a position on this particular manifestation of sexuality that he believed to be consistent with Scripture, which of course... Just kind of a lot could be said there. But what we also heard and saw is this winsomeness to say, well, he might think this about that expression of sexuality, but this is what he thinks about this person. And we're separating that because you do know, side note, that we are more than our sexuality. Our humanity is not synonymous with sexuality. Another discussion for another day. So Paul's attitude, we see, is effective at engaging, but also Paul's approach is extremely effective in the way in which we see him engage here. Look at verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. There's that affirmation. For as I passed along and observed. Let's just take that. The beginning of what Paul's approach is, he was observative. He paid attention. He listened. He discerned. He opened his eyes. You know why? Because he was in the midst of them. He was being salt and light. He was in the world. He knew what they believed. He watched them practice their beliefs. He rubbed elbows with them. His approach begins with immersion. Why was Paul effective? Because he was immersed into the culture. He had not retreated from the culture. Not only was he immersed in it, but he was able to reason, as was his custom. And this is where Paul, you know, it's pretty easy and quick to get intimidated by the precision and skill we see the apostle in situations like this, which surely this is just a snippet, right? Like in a minute, Paul gets to this presentation that's either a sermon or a lecture or whatever it is. And if you read slowly in our text, it's only two minutes long. Knowing that Paul was not particularly short-winded himself, what all scholars conclude is this is just a summary or a snippet of what Paul did in Athens. But nevertheless, what we see here is Paul was very reasonable. He was respectful. And he was respected in a way that was a little mind-boggling. And I know, and I don't know that I should feel apologetic about this. I know that I mentioned Tim Keller from New York City frequently. And I guess I just need to say, sorry, not sorry. And so when I think about a person that makes Christianity plausible and reasonable in an environment that, let's just say, hmm, is not very receptive to the historic Christian gospel. It's amazing to watch him regularly go on morning programs like Morning Joe with great reasonableness, respectfulness, 
and be respected for it. It's amazing to watch him regularly write op-eds in the New York Times and the Atlantic and other publications. That while they might be disagreed with by others, it's respected. And I would argue he's standing firm to historic, biblical, gospel truth that could not be any more unpopular in a place like New York City on things like sexuality, on things like the structure of the church, on things like the existence of hell, on things like the exclusivity of Jesus. Of course, there's much you could read if you're a note taker. Write this down. The writer is Nicholas Kristof for the New York Times. He writes twice a week. Two years ago, he wrote, Am I a Christian, comma, Pastor Tim Keller? And Nicholas Kristof engages in a conversation that he writes about with Tim Keller about Christianity. There's a lot you could read. That would be a great one to read because it's just so reasonable and effective as Paul was. So Paul was observant. He was reasonable. He was also, and this is key, knowledgeable. Now, we live in a day and time, and this day and time has been for a long time, and I think it's finally caught up with the church in many ways. It seems 50 years ago, there was this sense within the church, within broad evangelicalism, within, again, this born-again movement, hey, become a Christian and check your brains at the door. And it sounded all nice and neat. And we believed what we believed because our grandmother told us to believe it. Or we believed what we believed because our Sunday school teacher told us to believe. But what we started to see is what we believed held no weight. We could not do as what Peter said, which was to be able to give a reason and a defense for the faith that we have. And then we wonder why the church loses influence in the world. When many of the world that are outside Christianity actually not only know more about Christianity than Christians do, they know more about the Bible than Christians do. In a day and time when biblical literacy is so low, yet at the same time we demand respect, something's got to give. And I'm not just saying you, you, you. I get that this is my job, but this is us. Paul was knowledgeable of his own faith. How did he become knowledgeable of that? Hmm? I don't know. He studied. He practiced solitude. He prayed. He lived in community. He engaged in dialogue about things that mattered. And he regularly had his faith challenged. In some ways, I get this whole idea of like, you know, are we supposed to be missional? Is it evangelism, discipleship? All these questions that so much the church asks, it's just funny to me. Jesus never asked them. We have so many terms and so many monikers that we make in the church today, and I just don't see them in Scripture. So how about this? 
If you're regularly engaged with people that don't believe, so much so that you have to think about your own faith, you have to reason your faith, you have to be able to study your faith in a way where you could potentially articulate your faith with clarity and a compelling reason, I don't know, it seems to me that that might be a good example of discipleship. Like, I think that seeking to engage unbelief and being missional actually inherently is a way to grow in your own faith. Paul did that. He was knowledgeable of his own faith, and I've already mentioned this, but I'll just repeat it again. He was knowledgeable of their faith and their culture. Did you see him do this integration favorably? Paul quotes from the Avit brothers, or their version in the first century, of their poets, right? Even as your own poets have said, he was knowledgeable, not only of his faith, of theirs. And then lastly, and this is where we'll conclude, he challenged them. And this really is where there's a whole other sermon embedded in Paul's uh, sermon here. But I'll just simply say this, Paul challenged them. In the midst of affirming, in the midst of being humble, in the midst of being burdened, in the midst of having this knowledge and respect and being respected, etc., Paul also was not afraid to challenge. And he said, look, you worship things that you created. I proclaim to you the creator of the whole world. He challenges them with God being the creator. He challenges them with God being the sustainer of the world. He challenges them with God being the ruler of all things. He challenges them with God being the father. And then lastly, he challenges them, interestingly enough, with God being a judge. He's calling them to account. And then he ends by saying, and so just take what you want. That's fine. Just do with with this what you want. No. He ends by saying, because of all this, here's what you need to do. Repent. That's the ultimate challenge. Paul calls them to change. Paul calls them to turn from their gods to the God. Will we do this? Will we, by God's grace, seek to engage those around us, to engage unbelief, to engage the culture with an attitude and an approach that would be effective like Jesus ultimately, but also like Paul himself. I'll close by, saying, by quoting from John Stott. It's not only the comprehensiveness of Paul's message in Athens, which is impressive, however, but also the depth and the power of Paul's motivation. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on And that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission, and tongue-tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel what Paul felt. We have never had the passion of indignation which he had. Divine jealousy has not stirred within us. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name but we do not seem to mean it or care that his name is so widely profaned. And I would just simply say, God, have mercy. And the good news of the gospel ultimately is not about our motivation, but it's ultimately about God's motivation. And we pray that we would capture 
along with him, his motivation to engage those who don't believe. Pray with me. Father, we thank